Uh, one of my favorite people, I've told you about many, many times, is C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis said that if we find within ourselves, if we find in, within ourselves a longing or a desire which can't be fully satisfied in this world, perhaps the best explanation, the most logical explanation is that we were actually created for another world. That if there's something inside of you, a longing, a, a need, a desire, but it just can't be fully satisfied, he, he says that that is a whisper, that, that's a reminder that you and I and all of us, that we were not created for this world. And, and C.S. Lewis's observation, it, it kind of springs forth out of some questions that humans have been asking for a really long time. Questions like, is there such a thing as life after death? I don't know when the last time you thought about that, but you know, is there such a thing as, as life after death or is this all there is? Is there such a thing as heaven? Is heaven a reality? Is it some kind of human, you know, some kind of human thing that we've all conjured up to make ourselves feel better about the inevitabilities of life? Is there such a thing as life after death? And is there such a thing as heaven? Uh, will our human consciousness somehow survive the death of our physical bodies? When our physical bodies die, is there a part of our consciousness? Is there a part of our spirit or our soul that continues to live even beyond the death of our physical bodies? And if there is life after death, uh, will we be re reunited with each other? Will we know each other? Will we retain our identity? Will you be you and will I be me? And will we recognize each other? And, and what will our existence be like in the afterlife? Uh, will there be a day of divine reckoning? Will there be a day of judgment when, when an accounting is given uh, to the divine or to God? Uh, and, and these are all really interesting and really important questions that humans, humans have been grappling with these questions really for as long as we've existed. And, and life after death isn't just something it seems like we're curious about because we really are curious about this as human beings. We've always been curious about the notion of life after death. And it's just not something that we're curious about. It's actually seemingly, it appears that it's something that we are confident of, that we are confident that somehow there is life after death. And I say confident because human beings from every age, from every place, they have believed that in some way we would survive death and that this life isn't all that there is. Uh, I read an article uh, sometime back that talked about the burial remains that have been found uh, dating back some 34,000 years, some dating back a couple hundred thousand years, maybe some as old as 300,000 years. And, and these burial sites uh, of ancient people, th these burial sites were actually, they were arranged in such a way that it was quite obvious that the people who buried them, they were preparing them in some way for some type of other life. They, they just assumed that there was something beyond this life. And so this, this is like an ingrained belief. It's a universally shared belief. And anytime that there's a universally shared belief among us human beings, we should pay attention to that. We should pay attention to that because we should wonder, where does that come from? Where does that curiosity spring from? Where does that intuition spring from? So this is like a universally shared belief and it has been throughout history of all peoples from all corners of the earth. And not much has changed in our modern culture. Matter of fact, if you just you know, stop and think about it and pay attention, you'll see that the idea of heaven or the afterlife, the idea of heaven permeates our culture. I mean, it's, it's in all kinds of songs, you know, Bob Dylan knocking on heaven's door, made famous by Guns N' Roses, you know, 
You remember that? And uh, some of you are like, what, who? Uh, you know, so they took Bob Dylan. It's like, Bob who? And some of you, you know, you're like, he can't sing. And, and then they came along and they, they recut that song. It was like the greatest thing ever. Eric Clapton, he wrote about tears in heaven. Remember that song? Uh, Led Zeppelin, they were walking the stairway to heaven. Uh, and, and that was pretty amazing. Heard that one in church this week. Uh, so that was pretty cool. And uh, so there, there's all of these songs. Belinda Carlisle's Heaven's a Place on Earth. You know, Bruno, uh, he says, you know, you make me feel like I'm locked out of heaven. And, and it just goes on and on and on. All kinds of songs about heaven. It's just kind of, it just permeates our culture. Like people sing about it, talk about it, refer to it as if it's just this understood notion. It's just, it's there. And it's like, where did this come from? It's, it's not something new. It's, it's, been, it's been in our history for generations. Matter of fact, throughout our existence. And then there's sayings uh, that we all have. And especially in Appalachia, you know, two people get together and I mean, they're just made for each other. Their personalities complement each other. They're yin and yang. They're, I mean, it's like, it's just, it's just wonderful. They fit together perfectly. It's like they're a match made in what? Heaven. Or for heaven's sake, for heaven's sake, heaven's sake. You know, you've probably said that before or you know, something smells really bad, stinks to high heaven. <laughs> Which doesn't sound a whole lot like heaven if it stinks. It stinks to high heaven, you know, heaven forbid. Oh, heaven forbid. You know, heaven forbid, it's like, okay, yeah, we just say it. Manna, this, this steak is like manna from heaven. Or here, here's my personal favorite, I don't understand it at all. But I tell you, that was so good, it was like being in hog heaven. <laughs> Do hogs have a better heaven? It's like, is that better than our heaven? It's, gonna, it's like hog heaven. I'm like, what? What does that mean? And, and so it's just everywhere. It's in our songs, it's in our sayings, it's in the literature, it's in movies. It, it just, it permeates our culture. Matter of fact, 75%, nearly 75% of Americans say they believe in heaven. They believe in the afterlife. And that's really interesting because as the numbers raise among people who are denying faith, people are willing to walk away from their faith. They're just not willing to walk away from their belief in life after death. So that's something interesting to think about because people are giving up their Christian faith and people are giving up other religion and their faiths, but their thing that they're not willing to relinquish is their their belief, this this central cardinal core belief that there is some kind of life beyond this life. And and this makes perfect sense in a lot of what C.S. Lewis said, that if you find within yourself a longing, a desire, that, that there's no full satisfaction in this world, then the only logical conclusion is you must have been made for another world, a world that's yet to come. It also makes sense in a lot of the words of King Solomon, who, who was known for his wisdom and, and in his personal memoir that we call the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, not, not the biggest pick-me-up read in the scripture, I, I'll be honest. He kind of talks about everything's just vain, everything's just empty, everything's just meaningless. And, and, and then he says this, he, he writes this down in his journal. He says that God has made everything beautiful in its own time. That, that seemingly everything that happens in time and space in your life and my life, that everything in time and space, it, it's like it has a purpose, a purpose beyond this life, a meaning beyond this life, a reason attached to it. Not a reason that we always understand and not even a reason that we would say that we even like, but there's a reason attached to everything. Certainly not an explanation attached to everything, but there's a purpose, a meaning, a reason. And then he says this, that God has also set eternity in the human heart. And this is really, this is phenomenal because writing in ancient days, writing about 700 years, you know, before the coming of Jesus in history, Solomon was acknowledging that within the human consciousness, 
There is a God-given awareness that there is something greater than this present world and something greater than this present life. And it seems as though that, that Solomon, in his own ancient way of describing it, he's referencing this internal innate sense, this internal knowledge that, that all humans have to some degree, this suspicion that there's more to life than what we can experience in this life, that there's more to life than just this life because God has built into you and God has built into me and God has built into human beings all around the world throughout history. He's built into us this idea that's eternal. This idea that there's something greater than ourselves, there's something greater than this world, there's something greater than this life of ours, there's something beyond it. That there's a belief somewhere deep inside of us that springs from the deepest parts of who we are, that believes that there is a meaning, that there is a purpose to this life and a meaning and a purpose that extends beyond this life. And that's really, that's really something interesting to think about, especially you know, knowing when Solomon wrote this, that he says that everybody has this sense, this intuition, that everything has a meaning and everything has a purpose and that there's more to this life than just this life. There's a life beyond this life. Now, if this is true, it explains why so many people in our world may be discontent because everybody's trying to you know, fulfill their longings and their desires in this world when really they were created to exist and have those fulfilled in another world. And this whole idea that, that we're eternal, this whole idea that, that there's life beyond this life, it's a really powerful and transforming idea when you take it seriously. If you believe that there's life beyond this life, that there's life beyond your death and my death and our death, that's a powerful thing. So 700 years after Solomon says this, Jesus steps you know, onto the pages of history and, and he shows up and he begins to say things like this. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in or trusts in him would not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. Jesus showed up and he started talking about the sense that there is a reality of life beyond this life. Uh, Jesus began to talk about the fact that everybody spends forever somewhere that there is an existence in the life to come that is in the presence of God where peace and joy and love exist. But there's also an existence after this life that is in a separated state from God that's apart from peace and love and joy. And he, he, he paints that all throughout his ministry that everybody spends forever somewhere. But he, he looks at people and says, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. Uh, he says, I am the bread of life. And if you eat of this bread, you'll never grow hungry. I'm, I'm the water of life. If you drink of this water, you'll never be thirsty. I am the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. And I give to them what? Eternal life. And they will never perish. Uh, or what Jesus said, probably most famous of all at the, uh, at the tomb of Lazarus. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And though a person die, yet shall they live. And so Jesus, he began to offer his followers eternal life and a future hope. One of the incentives of following Jesus was not only just a better life, abundant life here and now, but eternal life beyond the here and now and a future hope. Eternal life that says you will never cease to exist. Just think about that for a moment. You will never cease to exist. Your memories will never cease to exist. They may exist differently than you know them right now, but your memories, you will carry on to the next life. The experiences of this life will live on 
in your consciousness and mind to some degree in the life to come, that you will never die. And that's powerful and that's provocative. So Jesus offers his followers eternal life, but then he offers them a future hope. And this is what we talked about last week, that Jesus said, in the future, I will come again. And when I come again, I'm gonna resurrect the body of every believer who has died. And I'm gonna give them a brand new body, a glorified body, a body which will never die. And the people who are alive when Jesus comes the second time, he will give to them a body as well, a body that will never die, that cannot succumb to disease or death or decay. And so Jesus said, this is what I want you to look forward to. And it will come as a thief in the night. But I'll tell you, there's gonna be wars and rumors of wars until then. There's gonna be famines and earthquakes in various places until then. There's gonna be disease and pestilence and pandemic until then. There's gonna be nation that rises against nation until then. But just know that we are headed towards that future. It's an inevitable, inescapable future. I will come again. And so you have Jesus's words. You've got other passages in the New Testament. You've got that big book of Revelation, which just freaks people out, you know? And, and, and the whole point of it all, the whole point of future things, the whole point of talking about the end of the world, quote unquote, in the scriptures, the, the whole point behind talking about what the future holds, isn't so that we'll sit around and try to figure it out like puzzle pieces, it's not so that we'll sit around and try to set dates and figure out, okay, well, this country's on the move and this leader and that leader and oh my goodness, this could be it. That, that wasn't the intent at all. The intent was so that we would know that there is a future hope out there and that life was gonna continue the way life has continued throughout history until then. Life is gonna continue to repeat itself. Sin is gonna continue to play out the way it's always played out through history. The point of what Jesus said and the point of what the New Testament teaches us about the end is to be ready and stay busy. Amen. Be ready and stay busy. Let's all just say that together at all the churches. Be ready, stay busy. One more time. Be ready, stay busy. That, that was it. Just be ready when it comes and stay busy. Stay busy doing what's most important. Stay busy with your purpose. Stay busy and live your present with the future in mind because a thoughtful contemplation of the next life influences how we choose to live this life. Now, this is the idea of the whole New Testament. You, you find this, this idea permeating, you know, so much of the teaching of the New Testament that, hey, when you thoughtfully contemplate your next life, it influences how you choose to live this life. Uh, continue, uh, consider the words of Paul for just a minute and, and listen to this. And I just wanna show you from a few different places of how, of how this is the idea of the New Testament that when you think about your next life, it impacts the way you choose to live this life. Uh, Paul talked about our blessed hope. And, and this is what he says. He, he wrote to a young pastor by the name of Titus. He said, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God, that God has been better to us than what we deserve, than what we could ever earn. He says, this grace of God, it teaches us to say no. No to ungodliness and worldly passion. Ungodliness is, is the idea that you're living life as though God doesn't exist. And every single one of us who say we believe that God exists, we have the capacity to actually live our day-to-day -day lives as though God doesn't exist. We say we believe in an all-knowing and all-present a God, but so much of our lives, it actually stands in opposition to what we say we believe. We, we live as though God isn't all-knowing and we live as if God is not all-present. So he says, to say no to that type of living, 
that you say you believe that God exists. If somebody said, hey, you believe God exists, of course you're gonna say yes. But to not live your life in a way that is in opposition to what you say you believe. So say no to ungodliness. Live your life as though God exists and say no to worldly passions. And the best definition I can give you of that is that it's the pursuit of pleasure. It's the pursuit of pleasure that ends in pain. You think you're chasing pleasure and when you catch what you think is pleasure, it actually is nothing but pain. You have hurt yourself, you have hurt others in pursuit of a pleasure. And in pursuit of that pleasure, you brought pain to you and you brought pain to everybody around you. It's what Solomon talked about. It's like honey that's sweet for a moment and then it turns to gravel in our mouth. You thought it was gonna be sweet, but it ended up choking you to death. And that's what he's saying. He says, so say no to that and live self-controlled. Live self-controlled. Learn how to tell yourself no. Uh, Learn how to harness yourself and to lead yourself and how to make yourself go in a direction that you don't necessarily wanna go, but you know it's the best direction to go. Say no to what you need to say no to and learn how to make yourself say yes to what you need to say yes to. Be upright and live godly lives when? In this present age. Be upright. Live your life with noble motives and with honorable action. Noble motives, honorable action. Some people have honorable actions, but they don't have necessarily noble motives. But he says, have noble motives that reveal themselves through honorable actions and just be godly. Live as though God exists. Everybody here behaves differently when somebody's around watching, right? I've told you before, it's like going to the Kroger and you've you've bought more than you ever thought about, you know, purchasing. You got like $500 of groceries in the little bitty cart. It's like, how's that even possible? You're using all three layers, all three levels. Some of you are like, it has three levels. It does. You got to look carefully though. And you got to be creative. But then you go out there and you're tired and you put all this stuff away in your car. And you realize you park a long way from the cart parking spot, you know, where you're supposed to put your carts at the end. And then you're like, no, I don't want to today. And then you look up and you're like, somebody's watching on that flipping camera up there. I, I know they are. And it's like, Well, I'm not gonna be that jerk. And then because somebody might be watching, you do something different than as if somebody wasn't watching because we're all different. People work out harder when somebody's watching. People behave better when other people are watching. Most of the time, not all of the time, but a lot of the time. And so he said, just just live your life as though God exists. It'll help a lot. Assume God's listening to what you're actually saying. And if you believe that, it may actually choose what you say. If you actually believe God can see you, well, that's a bit uncomfortable to think about for a moment. And it certainly may alter some behavioral choices if you think that way. But for some of us, it's just hard for us to think that way. But he says, you gotta train yourself. You just gotta work on this. He says, do this while we wait, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He he says, this future event has present implications. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Why are we eager to do what is good? Because we know what lies ahead. And a thoughtful contemplation of our next life, it really begins to inform how we live this life. So when we live life in the present, in light of the future, we're just motivated to do good. 
Acts of kindness, acts of love. And so Paul, I think he wants us to ask a couple of questions on the heels of this. It's like, okay, well, what are some things in my life that I need to say no to that I've been saying yes to? What are some things that I need to say yes to that I've been saying no to? And I don't even have to tell you what those things are because I'm confident you probably already know what they are. You've already been thinking about them. You've already been wrestling with them. And that thing has just been poking you about it. Poking, it's the thoughts you can't. What do you need to say no to that you've been saying yes to? And what do you need to say yes to that you've been saying no to? And what behavior of yours and what behavior of mine is out of alignment with what we say we believe? I say I believe this, but I behave like this. And to do my very best to bring these two things into alignment. So that's Paul. Uh, Peter. Peter, he was pretty important. Listen to what he said. He said, praise be to God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as he teases this idea out, he lands here. He says, so with this living hope as obedient children, as obedient children, do not conform yourself to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance or before you came to faith or before you knew better, before you knew the truth. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Now, he says, be obedient, be obedient children. Obedient children, they, they obey for lots of reasons, but two, I think, I think maybe Peter had in mind. Obedient children obey out of love and out of respect for authority. Out of love and out of respect for authority. And Peter says, that's how you should live your lives in light of the future to come. You should obey your savior out of love and you should obey your savior out of respect for his authority because he is God and you are not. He is king and I am not. So just because you love him and because you recognize who he is, it begins to change the way you live your lives. And when your desires or my desires are not in keeping with the Jesus way of life, you part ways with your desires, not with Jesus. And I'm a little bit suspicious that the reason we live in a culture today where so many people seem to be abdicating their faith, it's because their desires wanna go this way, but Jesus wanna go this way, and they decide, hey, we're gonna leave Jesus rather than leave behind our desires, and we're gonna follow our desires rather than follow Jesus. So we just, we just don't believe that anymore because at least they understand we can't behave the way that we wanna behave and say we believe what we say we believe. So we just decide we don't believe it anymore. And so Paul, you know, Peter's saying, so you follow when it's hard, you follow when it's costly, you follow when it's inconvenient. And, you know, I didn't come today expecting a lot of amens, but that's okay. I, I knew it was gonna be heavy on this part, but don't worry, it's gonna get better, all right? He says, be holy. And it's like, man, that sounds old fashioned. It's, it's pretty old, it's about 2000 years old, holy. And it's, it's this idea of being set, set apart. Like you're, you're like a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon. You're like a brush in the hands of an artist. You're like a tool in the hands of a mechanic. You're ready to be used. You are set apart by God for God's purposes in your present life. Uh, that's Peter. Uh, Paul, and then throw in James. Listen to what James says. He says, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another. Wonder why he said that to church people. Because he had met some. Don't grumble against one another. Brothers and sisters, you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I could camp out here for a while. And I could make all of us, including myself, really uncomfortable. 
but I don't know if I will or not. We'll see in a moment. I'm not making any promises. But listen, instead of speaking bad over each other, of course, when they're not in the room, because that's, nobody's got the, uh, the guts to say it while they're in the room or to actually say it to their face. So what you do by grumbling is you acknowledge that you're a coward and you're spineless and basically you have no guts. So one, you're making a major confession about yourself. So my friends aren't in the room. I'm gonna talk about my friends in the room to my other friends who are stupid enough to think that because I'm talking about my friends who aren't in the room, that I'm not ever gonna not talk about them when they're not in the room. So when people grumble to you, they're calling you stupid because they think it's like, Oh yeah, and then it's like, oh yeah, I agree. I've been thinking the same thing. I just, I don't know. I've been, been kind of wanting to say something, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. Oh, you're so noble. <laughs> Such a good person you are. So I'm just going to talk about them. I'm going to complain about all the things that I don't like. I'm going to talk about how their life's headed towards hell and destruction and darkness, and it's just everything's wrong. And he says, don't do that. Your grumbling is an audible sound of your heart's contempt. It's the audible sound of our heart's contempt for somebody else. And we can pretend we like them in other settings. We can pretend we think they're great in other settings. But when we grumble, we betray the contempt that is in your heart, my heart, our heart. And grumbling always stands in the way of us loving people. It always stands in the path of us serving people and encouraging people. So he says, don't grumble. Why? Jesus is coming back. And then he just calls him the judge. And he's like, do you really want to stand before him? Say, well, grumbling's not as bad as some other sin. Oh, you've not read the book. <laughs> you have not read the book. Like, go take out, check out the sons of Korah. It's like, sons of who? J just go read it. And, 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 and just like, oh my goodness, this is a serious thing. And, and then of course, you know, not only James, but I'm going to circle back to Paul because kind of start bringing the plane in for landing here. Paul, he talks about this again. He says, for I'm already ready to be poured out like a drink offering and am, and the time of my departure is near. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. We all have heard this before. How did he fight the good fight of faith? And how did he keep running the race of faith? And how did he refuse to let go of faith? Well, he tells us, now there is in store for me future tense the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, future tense, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I've been thoughtfully contemplating the life to come and it has influenced my choices in this life. So I have run my race. I refuse to quit. Did I wanna quit? Yes, I wanted to quit. I've been, I've been fighting this fight because it is like a fight. And I feel like I've gotten knocked down, I don't know how many times, but I got back up and I kept on punching. And sometimes I didn't even have enough strength to punch, so I just held on. And I refused to let go. Paul, how in the world? You must be an all-star. You must just be incredible. He said, no, I, I've been thinking about some things. And I believe that if I don't give up and I don't give in, it's gonna be worth it one day. It may not feel worth it today, but it will be worth it one day. Now, I want you to imagine waking up every day, every day of your life, every day of my life. Imagine waking up, both feet hit the ground and, and you just believe that every good thing you do that day, every right thing you do that day, no matter how costly, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how uncomfortable, every noble thing, every honorable thing you do, every act of kindness, every act of service, every time you say no to what you should say no to and yes to what you say yes to, that you believed in your heart of hearts. 
it's gonna be worth it. Because I promise you, I promise you, in the moment, a lot of times, it does not feel worth it. To say no, it doesn't feel worth it in the moment. To say yes in the moment, it doesn't feel worth it. But Paul just, he decided that he believed that it would be worth it one day. And when you believe it's gonna be worth it one day, it actually gives you the courage and the fortitude and the strength to do it today. Amen. Paul said it this way in another place. He said, uh, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death or those who are you know, dead so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. And again, he's talking about future. He says, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. He says, your future hope can even change how you see and approach death. It changes the way you process grief and loss. It changes your perspective when you say goodbye to a loved one who has died. And again, it's the same thing over and over and over again. A thoughtful, thoughtful contemplation of the life to come, it influences how you live your life today. Your future hope has present implications. And this is the collective teaching of the New Testament. It changes our choices and behavior. It just does. And all throughout the New Testament, it just says this over and over again in one way or the other. That we have a confidence, that when we have a confidence of what is to come, when we have a confidence that Jesus is coming back and there's gonna be a life beyond this life, we begin to think about every single day differently. And so let me, let me give you these things to think about. This is what it means. It means our future hope re-envisions the stories of our pain. Yes. We, we think about our pain differently. You have pain, I've got pain, we've all got pain. It manifests itself differently, it happened differently, but we begin to re-envision our stories of pain that it's not meaningless. It's not random that God makes everything beautiful in its own time. We begin to see it differently. Our future hope inspires us to live out our purpose. It just does. It's like, I, I got today. I may not have tomorrow. I got today. I got to be busy. I got I to gotta get serious. I got to gotta quit playing, playing games. I got to just quit being so casual about my faith. And I, I got to get, get, I need to bear down. I need to pay attention to some things. It means our hope cultivates joy and peace and holds fear at bay. That I can live with joy and peace right now in this life with everything happening and I can have fear that's held at bay because I know what's to come. And it means that our future hope, our future hope gives us the courage to follow Jesus and abandon our sin. And can I just add because I'm, I'm an experienced sinner. And there's not few things that I feel like I can give expert opinion on, but I promise you, it's not because you're gonna want to. You're not gonna want to, but you get the courage to do it because you believe it's right and you believe it's best. And so somehow you find a way to radically trust Jesus in a way that radically reveals itself through obedience that you trust that he knows what you don't know, that his ways are better than your ways. And so the New Testament says this over and over and over and over again. I was really torn what to do today in the sermon. I actually had about two and a half sermons uh, 
I thought about totally chunking one and going a different direction. So I broke up with one and, and let two of them hook up together and kind of make one, you know, because I just thought, man, we're ending this series and there's just so many takeaways from, from what it is that I think that the New Testament wants us to consider when we talk about this. So Paul, Peter, James, and, and the host of New Testament writers, they said, hey, you should spend more time thinking about the future about your life after this life because it will affect the way you choose to live your life today. But So we get to the end of the New Testament and, and this is where we do land the plane. We get to the end of the New Testament and no wonder John felt so compelled and so inspired to give us a, a more defined glimpse into the future, to, to give us a better idea of what life after death looks like what our existence will be like. And, and I've given you these verses just a few weeks ago, but there was no way I could leave them out again. There was just no way. Besides that, a third of you weren't here for it. And so I, I'll give it to you again, because I don't think we can talk about this enough. Listen to how John closes out the New Testament with everything that we talked about in mind. He says, I saw the holy city. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. He says, there's gonna be a time in the future where heaven and earth are reunited in a physical universe. Not an immaterial existence, but in a physical material universe. Just the way it was in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. And when God created the heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth overlapped. And when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, God was walking there in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve knew God and God knew Adam and Eve. And there was this overlapping of heaven and earth. But when sin came in, heaven and earth experienced a fracture. It was ripped apart. John says, there's coming a day when heaven and earth, they're gonna be reunited and there will be no longer any separation between the physical and the spiritual. The spiritual will no longer be at a distance. It will no longer be obscure. It will no longer be through a glass darkly, but the reality of the spiritual and the reality of the physical, it will be brought together once and for all. And John is picturing our eternal state, our eternal home, what, what some people call heaven, not heaven up there in the sky, but heaven right here, not pie in the sky as one writer said, but a feast right here on the earth. And there's gonna be cities, there's gonna be cities and where there's cities, there's music, there's art, there's friendship, there's family, there's culture, there's athletics. Paul, Peter, John wrote this to people who knew what happened in cities. And he said, there's a city coming down from God. This is not, this is not ethereal, this is not metaphorical. This is a physical thing that's gonna take place. I spent uh, early part of my week with all of our staff in Alpharetta, Georgia at a conference that we went to uh, because our staff, we're, we're trying to get better and we're, we wanna do better and, and we want to be able to lead our church better and more effectively. So we, we were down there being busy, but Alpharetta, this is a great town. And you know, we'd come in at the end of the night and then you know, we, we'd go out for dinner and man, it was just, it was hustle, it was bustle. I mean, people were on rooftops eating and you could hear people laughing and you could hear people you know, playing music and, and people telling 
telling stories. And, and I, I was just walking around because I knew, I knew, I knew what I was talking about. Uh, and then I volunteered to go pick up pizza for all of my hungry staff members uh, at 11.45 at night, trying to be a servant of all. And, you know, so I girded myself with my towel, got in my car and, and went in search of pizza. And, and so I, I went out and I was just thinking about this. I was like, man, this is, this is, this is it. It's kind of a picture of it. And, and then I drove from, you know, Alpharetta. I met Allison and, and some friends in Nashville and, and we were out and we went to dinner and, and we were down there on the main drag and there was all these people and all this music and, and so much was going on. And I was just sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is great. It was a great night. It was a great week. And I was thinking, this, this, this is what John wanted people to understand when he said, there's a city coming down. The best about the city will be the reality in the life to come. And everything that is wrong and everything that has distorted and everything that has brought decay or death or disease is gonna be removed. It's gonna be amazing. And we're gonna have bodies there, like physical bodies, like we talked about last week with bone and flesh. Bone and flesh bodies, we're not gonna be spirits. We're not gonna float with white robes. We're not gonna get chubby and grow wings. We're not gonna play harps. It's not gonna be any of that stuff. It, it, just, it just isn't. But we're, we're gonna live upon the earth with physical bodies. It's gonna be amazing. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell, talk to me, with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and they will be their God. And this is the story of the scripture. God created humanity and came to live with them in the garden. Sin fractured the relationship, but what did God always want? He wanted to be with his creation. He wanted to be with us like a father with his children. So he told Moses, build a tabernacle so I can dwell among them. He told Solomon, build this temple so I can dwell among them. Jesus came, died for us, sent the Holy Spirit so he could live within us. But one day he will not only live within us, but he will be around us and it will be an immersion of which we cannot even fathom. When you think about your greatest personal moment with God that you've ever had, it will not even compare to the immersive power of living in the presence and the fullness of God's goodness and God's love and God's joy and God's peace in the world to come. It's gonna be incredible. And this was Paul's, this was John's point. It's like, think about this for a moment. When he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Now I think there will be some tears in the new world to come, but I think there'll be happy tears. Uh, I, I, no tears from sorrow. But if you ever laugh so hard you cried, those are the best laughs. Those are the best. Some of you, it's been a long time since you laughed. You may have never laughed quite like that, but I can't wait to find you in the new world to come. I'll know once and for all, this is heaven because look at them, they're smiling, they're laughing, they're having a good time. This must be heaven. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain and the old order of things have passed away. No more pain emotionally, relationally, physically. The old tyranny of sin, sorrow and death, it's over. It's gonna be a place of no goodbyes. I can't see who's sitting on the front in Somerset, though we need to figure out how I can do that, or Williamsburg or Middlesbrough. But I'm looking across here, people that I love, people that I've known for years, and five years from now, our rows will look different. 10 years from now, some of these seats won't be occupied by the same people because life will happen. But John says, you know that because that's life. He said, but I wanna remind you about a day where there'll be no goodbyes and no empty chairs around the table and no empty places at the holiday 
a place where nothing's wrong and everything's right. Nothing's wrong and everything's right. What are some of you going to talk about? Really? I mean, what are you going to talk about? I mean, that's, if it's not wrong, you ain't got anything to talk about. He said, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I'm making a new world where the earth is going to be remade. The heavens are going to be remade to the way it was originally meant and intended to be. A place without fear where you couldn't even be afraid if you wanted to. A place where sin will no longer undermine your joy or my peace or our relationship with God or with other people. A place where we will know know no such thing as regret. No sense of disappointment or unfulfillment. No expectations will go unmet. In an existence where we are fully awake and fully alive, fully you and fully me together in a new world with limitless goodness and endless wonder that never fades away, that never grows old, where the shine never diminishes, where nothing becomes familiar. It all feels new every day, over and over and over again, with the beauty that we cannot fathom, with the joy that flows from that beauty that we cannot fathom. A time when all of God's promises have come to pass, when faith has become sight and hope has become reality. Jesus said, look, I'm coming soon. So until then, don't miss the whispers. Don't miss the preview, the foreshadows, the glimpses of the world to come. Because the greatest moments of your life here, they are whispers of the world to come. Your greatest laughter here, it's a preview of the world to come. Your greatest feast, your greatest party, your greatest adventure, your greatest trip, your greatest conversations, your greatest evening. It's a preview. It's a whisper. It's a foreshadowing of a new world that's to come where the world's beauty that we live in now, where they are mere shadows of the substance that will be revealed as the seed is to the tree and as the root is to the flower. When we will see things as they were always intended to be. This week I was sitting at the conference and we stood to sing. And it had been a long time since I stood anywhere with other Christians without being responsible for basically everything. And we began to sing and and I, I just got overwhelmed and I was watching the people lead us in worship and I got laughing because I was enjoying them so much and I had tears coming out and I was laughing and I I just, again, I knew what I was talking about. And I said, don't miss this. This this is a whisper in my ear of what it's gonna be like in the new world to come. I came home, been gone all week long, came home yesterday and the boys ran in and I gave them the biggest hug. I smelled their hair, I kissed their cheek, I kissed their lips. The other one came up, I grabbed both of them. I was rubbing through their hair, talking about how much I missed them, how good it was to see them. 
And it was a preview. It was a whisper of what it's gonna be like. One day to put our physical arms around those that we've said goodbye to, to those that we said we lost, but we found them again, alive and well. I think back to adventures that I've had with my friends and great dinners and the stories and the laughs and they're all whispers, they're all foreshadows. I think about hunting in the woods with my grandfather and hunting on the lake, fishing after crappie on hot summer nights and they were just whispers of adventures yet to come. I think of standing in Paris on top of a roof with some of the people that I love most in life and the moment was perfect and the majestic nature of everything in that moment, it was just so heavy, it was so inescapable, it was so undeniable and it was a whisper of the perfection of every single moment. I went to Argentina on one of my first mission trips and I got to know a group of people. Some were from Italy and some had migrated from different parts of Europe and some were Argentine by birth. And we sat there and at the end of our week together, right before I got on the bus to say goodbye with the rest of our team, we had communion with each other. And I thought to myself, this, this week, that was a whisper of when we are together in the kingdom of God with every tribe and every tongue and every kindred, and we are all family in one place forever. He said, I am the alpha and I am the omega, the beginning and the end. And he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. The new world to come will be all the things that we ever longed for, but couldn't be fully satisfied in this world because we'll be living in the world we were created for. The most ordinary moments in the new world to come will be greater than the most perfect moments in this life. A story where every chapter is better than the last. And just when we think it can't get any better, just when we think it can't get any better than this, it does. For Jesus' followers, there's no true endings, merely new beginnings, a beginning without end, in a world one day without end, where every question is answered, every doubt is resolved, every struggle over, where depression is exchanged for joy, and anxiety is exchanged for peace, and the sorrows of this life for laughter, loneliness for a family without goodbyes and where the brokenness of my life and yours will be exchanged for wholeness as we've never experienced before where every longing of our soul will be fully satisfied in a new world to come that is our hope heavenly father with our heads bowed, I pray that you would speak. It was Paul who said, take these words and encourage each other with them. John wrote these words to Christians who were living through some of the most difficult days that we could ever imagine. Let us thoughtfully contemplate the life to come and let us thoughtfully contemplate the life that we're living today. Speak joy and peace Hold fear at bay. 
Let us be a people of hope, stubborn, rebellious hope. And as we sit and listen to the words of this song, may the joy of the Lord wash over us. In Jesus' name.